This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another episode of the Islamic History Podcast. And not just another episode, another season, in fact. Yes, this is episode one of season two of the Islamic History Podcast. And as I mentioned in the final episode of season one, last season's podcast, which was really just a few months ago, we will be going over the history of Islam during the first 100 years after the Prophet's death, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Therefore, we're going to start just a little bit before the Prophet died, just so we can uh, get a little bit of background information. We're going to go all the way up until the year 720 CE, which is corresponds roughly to 100 years after the Prophet's death. But we will get into all the finer details later. For now, just enjoy the show as it comes up. This will be a pretty good one, inshallah, and will hopefully get you really interested in some of these very famous characters that we're going to come across over the next three or four months. So without any further delay, here we go with Season 2, Episode 1. Our story begins 10 years after the Hijrah, which we will later on come to call the year 10 AH. At this time, the Muslim world, the Muslim community has come a long way. 10 years earlier, when our calendar begins, the Hijri calendar as we know it now, 10 years earlier, Prophet Muhammad wasallam had just come to Medina, formerly known as Yathrib, with about 200 of his formerly persecuted followers from Mecca. He had come to Medina with about 200 followers from Mecca into the welcoming arms of the Ansars, the helpers, the community of Muslims in Medina. The Ansars greatly outnumbered the Muhajirun, who were those from Mecca. But together, these two communities, the Muhajirun and the Ansar, came together to make up the Muslim community. At that time, the Muslims were escaping persecution. They were a minority in their own city. At this time, the, the Muslims were still a minority in Medina, though that would change within about a year or so. But the point was that they were building something new. They were creating a new order, so to speak, a new order and a new way of living. And they were establishing Islam in the world for the first time since the previous prophet, who was Prophet Isa, Prophet Jesus, alayhi salam. Now, however, in the year 10 AH, things were vastly different. The Muslims who were before a small persecuted, perhaps nearly extinct group of people when they first came over from Mecca were now 
the most powerful and influential force in the Arabian Peninsula. Their only competition were the Romans or the Byzantines to the north, and their territory was shrinking rapidly, whereas the Muslim territory was rapidly growing. Every week would see new delegations from different Arabian tribes making the journey to Medina to give their bayah or pledge of allegiance to Prophet Muhammad And as they did that, every time a new, a new delegation came, the Muslim community would grow. These delegates would come, stay in Medina for some time, learn the basics of Islam, then go back to their tribes and teach their entire tribe what they have learned. And with that, Islam grew by leaps and bounds. And with few exceptions for the most part, Islam spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula at least peacefully. People willingly came to the Muslims and pledged allegiance. Of course, the Muslim reputation for battle had preceded them. So these tribes that were coming over, they knew it was perhaps best to make good with the Muslims rather than try to oppose them. Everyone else who opposed the Muslims had ultimately been defeated. So these tribes knew that it was in their best interest to join the winning side. And if you can't beat them, join them. They kind of took that sort of mentality. One of these delegations came from a very influential, large and powerful tribe in the center of Arabia. This area was known as the Najd, which is the central part of Arabia. One of these tribes was Banu Hanifa. Among this delegation from Banu Hanifa was a young man named Musaylama. At the time that this delegation came to Medina, they pledged allegiance to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, along with Musaylama. No one at that time knew, perhaps Musaylama himself did not even know, what pivotal role this young man would play in the future events of Islam. But for now, Musaylama, along with the rest of the delegation from Banu Hanifa, learned about Islam in Medina, and like all the other tribes, all the other delegations, went back to their tribe in Central Arabia and taught their people Islam. Before long, Arabia had been firmly established as a Muslim Islamic region. Except for the extreme northern parts of the peninsula, which were still under the control of the Persian and Byzantine empires, the entire Arabian Peninsula had been united under Islam and under the leadership of Prophet Muhammad Later on that year, in the 10th year of the Hijrah, Prophet Muhammad would make his first, last, and only Hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca. He had made Umrah before, but this was his only Hajj trip. This Hajj will be known as Hajjatul Wada, or the Farewell Hajj, and along with him came over 70,000 Muslims. 70,000 people made Hajj with the Prophet and it was, of course, during this Hajj, during the day of Yamul Arafat, the most important day of Hajj, that he delivered his famous Khutbatul Wada, or the farewell speech of the Prophet.
There are many versions to this speech, but they pretty much say the same thing, but in so many different words. And the most famous version comes from Sahih Muslim and is reported in other sources as well. And it goes something like this. Verily, your blood, your property are as sacred and inviolable as the sacredness of this day of yours, in this month of yours, in this town of yours. Behold, everything pertaining to the days of ignorance is under my feet completely abolished. Abolished are also the blood revenges of the days of ignorance. The first claim of ours on which blood revenge, which I abolish, is that of the son of Rabia ibn al-Harith, who was nursed among the tribe of Sa'ad and killed by Hudel. And the usury of the pre-Islamic period is abolished. And the first of our usury I abolish is that of Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, for it is all abolished. Fear Allah concerning women. Verily, you have taken them on the security of Allah, and intercourse with them has been made lawful to lawful unto you by words of Allah. You too have right over them, and that they should not allow anyone to sit on your bed whom you do not like. But if they do that, you can chastise them, but not severely. Their rights upon you are that you should provide them with food and clothing in a fitting manner. I left among you the book of Allah, and if you hold fast to it, you would never go astray. And you would be asked about me on the day of resurrection. Now tell me, what would you say? And the audience replied, We will bear witness that you have conveyed the message. Discharged the ministry of prophethood and given wise, sincere counsel. Then the prophet continued, then raised his forefinger towards the sky and pointing it at the people said, O Allah, be witness. O Allah, be witness. O Allah, be witness. Other narrations add more to this speech. Understand that there were many people listening to this speech and you get these several different narrations, and of course, for certain people, certain parts of the narration will stand out more than others. And so we have to put these different narrations together to try to get a complete understanding of the entire farewell speech of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. By all accounts, it doesn't appear to have been an actual reporter or archivist recording everything that the Prophet was saying word for word. So we get from another hadith that this was also added into the speech. O people, indeed your Lord is one and your Father is one. Indeed, there is no superiority of an Arab over a non-Arab, nor of a non-Arab over an Arab, nor of a white over a black, nor a black over a white, except by taqwa. Have I conveyed the message? They replied, you have conveyed a messenger of Allah. Then he said, What day is this? They replied, A sacred day. Then he said, What month is this? They replied, A sacred month. Then he said, What city is this? They replied, A sacred city. He said, Allah has made your blood and your property as sacred as this day of yours. In this month of yours, in this city of yours, have I conveyed the message? They replied, You have conveyed a messenger of Allah. He said, Let whomever is present tell whomever is absent. Other narrations include the following. 
O people, indeed, Satan despairs of ever being worshipped in this land of yours. He will be pleased, however, if he is obeyed in a thing other than that, in matters that you think are small. So beware of him in your religion, O people. Intercalating a month is an increase in unbelief, whereby the unbelievers go astray. One year they make it profane and hallow it another, to agree with the number that a God has allowed, and so profane what God has allowed, and hallow what God has made profane. Time has completed its cycle, and it was on the day that God created the heavens and the earth. The number of the months with God is twelve. In the book of God, on the day he created the heavens and the earth, four of them are sacred. The three consecutive months and Rajab Mudar, which is between Jamada and Sha'ban. Know for certain that every Muslim is a brother of another Muslim, and that all Muslims are brethren. It is not lawful for a person to take from his brother except that which he has given him willingly, so do not wrong yourselves. O Allah, have I not conveyed the message? And the people replied, O Allah, yes. And the messenger of Allah said, O Allah, bear witness. And another narration includes the following. O people, hear me well. I explain to you, for I do not know, I may well not meet you again in this place where I now stand after this year of mine. A deliberate murder is subject to retaliation in kind. An accidental death from a deliberate injury means a death resulting from something not usually used or intended as a weapon, such as a stick or a rock, for which the indemnity is a hundred camels. Whoever asks for more is a person of the era of ignorance. O people, Allah has apportioned to every deserving heir his share of the estate, and no deserving heir may accept a special bequest, and no special bequest may exceed a third of the estate. A child's lineage is that of the husband who owns the bed, and adulterers should be stoned. Whoever claims to be the son of someone besides his father, or a bondsman who claims to belong to other than his master, shall bear the curse of Allah and the angels and all men. No deflecting of it or ransom for it shall be accepted. And peace be upon all of you and the mercy of Allah. So what you have here is hopefully, inshallah, the entirety of the prophet's speech, his farewell speech. What I did was stitch the various narrations together in order to try to cover all of the main points that have been recorded by different people. And it it may sound a little stitched together because quite frankly it was, but that's because different translations have different methods of translating Arabic. But the point is you can get an idea of the most specific things, the more most important things that the Prophet wasallam was trying to convey to his people by listening to that speech. Some reports say that 70,000 people accompanied the Prophet on this farewell pilgrimage. Others say 100,000 people. Whatever the case may be, it is fair to assume that that was not even half the, pop- the entire Muslim population. So to think that at the time, Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and his followers made the Hijra 10 years earlier, there were probably less than a thousand Muslims in the entire world. You have roughly 200, really a little bit less than 200 Muhajirun, maybe another four or 500 Ansars, and that's about it. When the Muslims first made the Hijra from Mecca to Medina, less than a thousand people. Remember, the Prophet could barely pull together 300 people during the Battle of Badr. 
So it was a very 300 men, that is, during the Battle of Badr. So to go from less than a thousand Muslims to who knows, maybe even a half a million or a quarter of a million in barely 10 years, that was an amazing feat. Amazing. Remember, if 100,000 made Hajj, there were at least twice that many still at home, if you count women and children and all that. So it was an amazing feat that Islam had grown by so much in such a short period of time. It was also during the farewell Hajj that the not the last verse to be revealed, but one of the last verses to be revealed, the verse that sealed the revelation of Islam, the completion of the Prophet's message, chapter 5, verse 3, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us the following, Prohibited to you are dead animals, blood, the flesh of swine, and that which has been dedicated to other than Allah, and those animals killed by strangling or by a violent blow or by headlong fall or by the goring of horns, and those from which a wild animal has eaten, except what you are able to slaughter before its death, and those which are sacrificed on stone altars. And prohibited is that you seek decision through divining arrows, that is grave disobedience. This day, those who disbelieve have despaired of defeating your religion, so fear them not, but fear me. This day I have perfected for you your religion and completed my favor upon you and have made for you Islam as your religion. But whoever is forced by severe hunger with no inclination to sin, then indeed Allah is forgiving and merciful. This verse confirms the completion of the Prophet's message. When the Hajj pilgrimage was over and the Prophet returned to Medina, he found his youngest son, Ibrahim, had fallen sick and was near death. And in fact, his son, Ibrahim, did die soon after he returned. Not long after that, we enter the 11th year after the Hijrah and also the final year of the Prophet's life. Not long after that, the Prophet himself became sick. And there are lots of stories about there is a narration where the prophet وسلم, and one of his companions were visiting a tribe on a diplomatic mission 
And while they were there, they were fed some food and neither one of them, so far as we know, knew that the food was poisoned. However, when the prophet began to eat, he said, he began by saying, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, whereas his companion did not say anything. The poison killed the companion, but the prophet survived. Now, there are some who say that even though that poison did not kill him right then and there, through the mercy of Allah, eventually it did begin to work in his system. And by this time, it was actually beginning to destroy his health. I don't know how true that story is, but that is the most common one that I know of that goes into a little bit more detail about the actual sickness that ended his life. But as the prophet continued to get sicker and sicker, rumors began to spread throughout the nascent Muslim community. And as some of these tribes began to hear these things about the prophet uh, falling sick and not getting better, some of them started to have a few visions of grandeur of their own. And even as the prophet was still alive, there were a few of these distant tribes starting to break away from Islam. The primary primary way of breaking free for these two, for two of them at least, was for false prophets to come about. One of them was Musaylama, the one we mentioned from the tribe of Banu Hanifa. This one was so audacious that he actually wrote a letter addressing Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and claiming to be a prophet himself and suggesting that the two of them should split the Arabian Peninsula. And the Prophet وسلم, responded to him by in by addressing him as Musaylama the liar the liar. He said this letter basically this letter is from Prophet this letter is from Muhammad the Messenger of Allah to Musaylama al Kadhab, Musaylama the liar. And from that point on, even to this day, Musaylama is commonly known as Musaylama al Kadhab, Musaylama the liar. Now that was in Central Arabia. In southern Arabia, in Yemen, another false prophet had arisen named Aswad ibn Kab al-Ansi from the Ans tribe. We'll just call him Aswad al-Ansi. He also claimed to be a prophet and led his tribe in a breakaway movement away from the Muslim community. For the most part, however, most of the tribes held firm, but this was only temporary. In addition to his failing health, as well as these false prophets, the Prophet of Allah also had to deal with threats coming from outside. Towards the north, the Byzantines had become a little surprised to see that so many of these Arab tribes to their south had united under one banner, under one leader. When all the tribes were individual reckless, independent tribes. They were too small to oppose any sort of threat to the Byzantines. But now that they were united as one community, one force, one nation, they now saw that these were people to be reckoned with. And the Byzantines knew that at any moment, these united Arab tribes could turn against them under one one force. And in fact, it was quite likely they would. So the Byzantines, who were the vestiges of the old Roman Empire, they decided to start striking back and taking 
back some of this territory that had fallen into the Muslim hands, either through negotiation or warfare, and began to curb some of the power or check some of the spreading power of the Muslims. And so they began to attack some of the northern tribes that had pledged allegiance to Islam. With this, Prophet Muhammad decided to gather an army and send them up north. He was too sick to go himself, but he put it under the command of a young man named Usama ibn Zayd. Usama ibn Zayd was, of course, the son of Zayd, and Zayd uh, ibn Haditha was the, the Prophet's former adopted son. And if you're not familiar with his story, we spoke about Zayd ibn Haditha at length, especially regarding his marriage to Zainab in the first season of the Islamic History Podcast. And I encourage you to see that. You can find it at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Zayd, Z-A-Y-D. You can hear the story there. Usama was the son of Zayd. And he was only a teenager at this time. Some reports say about 16, 17 years old, somewhere around there. But the prophet gathered an army around him and began and sent him up north to tackle these Byzantines and put them in, in check. It is important to know, however, that there is a connection why he did this. Zayd, Usama's father, had been killed in battle fighting the Byzantines many years earlier. During the Battle of Muta, which was the first time the Muslims get a glimpse of the great Muslim general Khalid ibn Walid, the first time we get to see some of his prowess, this area known as Mu'ta was controlled by Arab tribes affiliated with the Byzantine Empire. Prophet Muhammad sent an army up there led by Zayd ibn Haditha, his formerly adopted son. But the Muslims at that time, this was several years earlier, were not ready to take on the Byzantines. They were still too small. And when they arrived there, the Muslims had a force of about 3,000. They didn't expect the numbers they were going to to see. When they arrived in Mu'ta, which is in what is now modern day, modern day Syria, when they arrived there, they found a Byzantine force close to 90,000. Some's even 100,000. But I think some of these numbers are kind of inflated. Most likely, it was a force of about twenty-five to 30,000. Whatever the case, this, this was a professional army. These were, these were professional soldiers, Byzantine soldiers, former Roman soldiers, basically, who were used to fighting the Persians in huge armies. These guys were professional killers, professional warriors, and they had the best in the modern equipment and fighting strategy for the time. The, the Muslims were not prepared for that. They were used to fighting these small Arab tribes and they got routed. They got really beat badly in this battle and were not for the strategy and the tactics of Khalid ibn Walid. The, the whole force would have been wiped out. But Khalid, Khalid ibn Walid led a successful uh, retreat after the Zayd and Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who was Ali's brother, were killed. And there was one more leader who was also killed. After the first three leaders had been killed, Khalid ibn Walid took over and led a successful retreat, keeping the Muslims from being completely wiped out. And they wouldn't have been had they continued that fight. So now that the Muslims were a little bit stronger now, now that they had the whole, whole peninsula, the Prophet put together a 
serious army, and he put it under the command of Zayd's son, Usama, and sent him up north to check those Romans, check those Byzantines, and teach them that things had changed a little bit now. Show them that the Muslims were forced to be reckoned with and put them in order. And so Usama went off on his way with the army. Now, the prophet could have sent Usama towards uh, Musaylam al-Kadhab, or he could have sent him to the south towards Aswal and Ansi, these false prophets. But for some, for whatever reason, the prophet thought it was, it was wiser and more strategic to send, to send him towards the most prominent threat, which were the Romans, the Byzantines. I'm going to use Roman and Byzantine interchangeably because they are essentially the same thing. The Byzantines were Romans. But for the most part, it is easy to understand why the Prophet was more concerned about the Byzantines than about some ragtag rebellious tribe in the center of Arabia, another one down in the south of Yemen. He could always come back and get those two. But his main thing was to make sure the Byzantines don't start eating away at the Muslim, at Muslim territory up in the north. After Usama's army had left, the Prophet continued to grow ill. He got sicker and sicker. And as his sickness worsened, he spent most of his time in his youngest wife, Aisha's house. He asked permission from his other wife to spend this time with his youngest wife, Aisha, and they all agreed. And he stayed most of the time with Aisha's house, in Aisha's house, only coming out to lead the prayer. You should understand that the prophet's master at that time was connected to Aisha's apartment, to her to. Uh, her house, basically, and it was separated only by a curtain. So when the prophet was ready to leave the prayer, he would just enter his house, enter the masjid by leaving his house. That was right there. So he would leave Aisha's apartment and come right into the masjid. Some of the other wives also had houses set up like that, but some of them also had their own houses separated from the masjid. But Aisha's house was the primary place where the prophet stayed, and it was connected right to the masjid. But eventually the sickness got to the point where Prophet Muhammad wasallam could not even lead the prayer. And so he asked Aisha to have her father, Abu Bakr, who was also the Prophet's best friend, have him lead the Muslims in prayer instead. Now, for whatever reason, Aisha was reluctant to do this, to ask her father to lead the prayer. Now, there are several reasons that we may speculate at. The one that Aisha gave in the hadith was that she said her father was a very emotional man. And when he led the prayers, he would cry. And that would not be good for the community to have a, a man up there leading the prayers and crying all the time. I, I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm going to suggest there may have been more to that. I really do think that Aisha may have known that that would have put her father in the in, in, in the position of being next in command, and perhaps she was a little bit worried about that. Allah knows best, of course, but Aisha was no dummy. She was a very wise woman, and I think she could see that if her father was specifically appointed to lead the Muslims in the capital of, of this growing Muslim empire in prayer instead of him, then I think she could realize that that may cause some jealousy or may cause some hard feelings among the other Muslims in the area. Allah knows best once again. Ultimately, Abu Bakr began to lead the prayer, but on this one day that the Prophet had asked him to lead, the Prophet suddenly felt better. And so he left 
Aisha's room and went into the masjid where Abu Bakr was praying. And the Prophet ﷺ was simply going to join the prayer as another congregant, as just another member of the prayer. But Abu Bakr just could not bear to leave the Prophet in prayer. He, it was just something that he just couldn't do. It, it, it was... um. You can imagine, you can understand, hopefully, the respect and love he held for the Prophet. There's no way he would feel himself worthy to lead the Messenger of Allah in prayer. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine leading the Prophet in prayer? That was just be impossible to me. So, Abu Bakr, he stepped aside to let the Prophet take over the leadership of the prayer. And the Prophet tried to hold him back and try to keep him in place. Baba Bakr was, was like, no, no, you lead the prayer. Now, they didn't say this, quote, they were praying, they weren't speaking. Baba Bakr refused to lead the Prophet in prayer. So the Prophet, sallallahu eventually did take over the imamship, the leadership of the prayer. He completed the prayer. And when the prayer was over, he returned to Aisha's room. And it was there that he finally died, not too long after leading that final prayer. This day in the Islamic calendar is the 12th of Rabi'ul Awal in 11 AH, 11 years after the Hijrah, and he died in Aisha's lap. Now, after the Prophet ﷺ died, Medina went in a frenzy. The city of Medina was in shock. People just couldn't believe that this man who had led them for so long, over 10 years, led them from a, a group of ragtag, unknown, barely even a thousand people to this humongous empire. He was the messenger of Allah. He was the one whom Allah communicated through to humanity through. The one who brought the last revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was the man who had brought down the final revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This wasn't this was you know the closest to divinity that that any human could ever get. And it was for many of them a very sad, emotional, and yes, shocking time. And some of these story, stories you may have heard. For those who were part of the Prophet's family, particularly Ali and Abbas and others like that, they went about the business of taking care of the Prophet's body and washing it and getting it prepared for burial. Others, however, they just... I don't want to say lose, lost their senses, but they did pretty much temporarily lose their grip on reality. Uthman ibn Affan, one of the Prophet's uh, sons-in-laws, he was married to the Prophet's daughter at the time. Uthman ibn Affan just went into a quiet corner and covered his head with his hands and just sat there motionless, like in a fetal position, just motionless, holding his head with his hands. Omar took out his sword and began stomping around Medina, threatening to kill anyone who said that the Prophet had died. He insisted that the Prophet had not died. He had only went to visit his Lord for a period of time, and he would come back and punish everyone who said that he had died. He said he had, he's gone to visit his Lord for 40 days, just like Musa did back in, back in the times of the children of Israel. You can see that many of the Muslims, they had lost their, their grip on reality. But Abu Bakr, he was the center of the storm. Of course, he was sad. And there's some uh, revela- there's some um, narrations showing how he went to see the Prophet's dead body and his, when his head was resting in, um, in his wife Aisha's lap. And Aisha, of course, is Abu Bakr's daughter. He went in there and said some some touching words and touched the prophet's head and 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 kissed him on the kissed the prophet's head his forehead but Abu Bakr for the most part 
he was the center of this thing and he tried to hold everything together. He went out there and when the entire city was in shock and Omar's whipping his sword around so he's going to kill people <laughs> if they say anything about the prophet's death, Omar went out there and reminded the people of something very, very important. That the prophet, despite his great attributes, despite his lofty status, despite his closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, despite being the example for all of us, he was still from among the children of Adam. He was still a man. He was a human. And one of the hallmarks of human existence is death. We all, at some point in time, must experience death. Abu Bakr went to the center of Medina, attracted everyone's attention, and recited the following verse. وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ رُسُولٌ أَفَإِمْ مَاتَ أَوْ قُتِلًا قَلَبَتُمْ عَلَىٰ عَقَابِكُمْ وَمَنْ يَنْقَلِبَ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ فَلَنْ يَدْرُرَ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا وَسَيَجَزِ اللَّهُ الشَّاكِرِينَ Translation of which is Muhammad is not but a messenger. Other messengers have passed on before him. So if he was to die or be killed, would you turn back on your heels? And he who turns back on his heels will never harm Allah at all. But Allah will reward the grateful. And when he recited these words, when Abu Bakr recited this verse from, from the Quran, that seemed to bring everyone back to their senses. And even Omar said that it was as if he had never heard this verse before, even though he most certainly had. And now that the people were beginning to accept the reality of the situation, it moved on to the discussion of who would take on the leadership of the Muslim world after this. While Abu Bakr was trying to calm the people down, actually, some of the Ansars had already gathered in a separate room, in a separate house, I should say, and were already discussing the, the successor to Prophet Muhammad, who would take over the leadership of the Muslim world. When the news got to Abu Bakr and Omar that some people were already discussing this, they immediately went to go handle the situation. In their minds, especially Abu Bakr's mind, he had to make sure that things were done right. It wasn't that he was trying to gain power for himself or anything like that, but he really had to make sure that things weren't decided in the Muslim community, which is in a very precarious position right now, wasn't thrown into disorder and disarray. So he wanted to make sure that he was there and able to guide the people to making intelligent and wise decisions. By all accounts, Abu Bakr did not really expect for things to turn out the way they did. And it is really fair for us to try to understand this in a very holistic manner. Things were moving very, very fast in a time when people couldn't communicate very quickly, at least not over short and at least not over long distances. People couldn't really communicate quickly. You had Osama's army on its way up north. And as a matter of fact, once uh, the word got to Usama. When the Prophet died, a messenger was sent to Usama and they were ordered to come back to Medina. And so they never actually made it to uh, to the northern parts, to Syria during the Prophet's life. And so they turned back around and headed back to Medina. 
Additionally, you still had these rebel tribes following Mosalem al-Kadhab to the west in the central Arabia and Aswad al-Ansi in Yemen uh, to the south. Furthermore, now you had the Muslim community, especially the Ansars now, in this discussion about who will be the leader, who will be the leader of the Muslim world. And Abu Bakr's main thing was to hold the Muslim community together. And so him and Omar rushed to this meeting to put their two cents in, so to speak. As it turned out, it was fortunate that they did because the Ansars were very close to choosing their own leader. In some of their minds, not all of them by any chance, it was the prophet that the, the prophet was the glue that held us all together. And so when he died, many of them thought, well, we should go back to the way things were before, not Islamically, but politically, tribally. No one was thinking about leaving Islam, but they were considering, well, Muhajir, don't you guys go on back to Mecca? You can stay here if you want to, but acknowledge our leadership and we here, we Ansars, we'll go back to our Aus and Khazraj divisions and the Aus will be over there and the Khazraj will be over here and everybody, go, things will go back to the same. We'll just continue worshiping Allah. They were actually thinking that, you know, kind of making what we have today. We have lots of different groups. Everybody's still worshiping Allah and following Prophet Muhammad, but there's no central authority. That's not what Abu Bakr and Omar wanted. They wanted to maintain that that single, consolidated, unified community that existed under Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so when they entered these discussions, a dispute began to arise. Abu Bakr made it clear that the Muslims must stay together as one group, so he vetoed or basically shot down any idea of separating the the leadership between two or three or any any kind of multiple different leaderships in multiple different leaders because the idea was floated well muhajir don't take their leader and go their way the ansars we take our leader and we go our way abu Bakr shot that down and said no we're going to stay as one unified community and then the decision well came up, well, who would be that unified leader? Who would be that unifying leader? And some were saying, well, it should come from the Muhajirun. But the Ansars, who were more numerous by far, they were saying, no, it must come from the Ansar. After all, this is our city. This is Medina. This should come from us. And with that, another dispute arose. And from some accounts, it was polite. Other accounts, it was a little, a little more heated. Abu Bakr reminded them of a narration from Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that the leadership should come from the Muhajirun. The Muhajirun were the leaders, essentially from the Quraysh. Now, this should not be taken to, to mean that all leadership throughout the entire Muslim history and the entire Muslim world must be consolidated in the Quraysh. But for his time, when those people who were living during his time and after his time, that generation that lived during his period of life, they must accept the leadership of the, of the Muhajirun who were from the Quraysh because they were the closest to him. They were those who accepted Islam under the most difficult of situations and held fast to it. And they were a very, very small community of people, the Muhajirun were. But the Prophet had made it clear that during his time, while he was alive and while the people within his generation were alive, the leadership should remain within the Quraysh and particularly within the Muhajirun of the Quraysh. And so Abu Bakr also shot that idea down. And so eventually the Ansars also agreed that, yes, we were 
we came into this thing as the helpers to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah did not give us this leadership. He gave us he gave us strength. He gave us fighting skills. He gave us wealth. He gave us the opportunity to support and help the Prophet. And we are satisfied with that. We don't need leadership. We don't need added glory to our names. We don't need additional nobility. Allah has given us something that is beyond leadership. He has mentioned us collectively in the Quran. That is enough honor and glory for us. And so for the most part, the Ansar accepted that the leader after them should, after Prophet Muhammad should come from the Muhajirun. Now the decision came down to who? And a silence fell upon everybody as everyone began to think who would be the leader. And I like to imagine that everyone but Abu Bakr had an idea in their mind. Abu Bakr, from some reports, said he actually thought it should be Omar, whereas everybody else quietly didn't want to say anything, but understood that, of course, logically, the leadership, the leader should be Abu Bakr. But no one wanted to come out and say it, except for one person who was never hesitant in speaking his mind, that would be Omar ibn al-Khattab. The same thought that was in Omar's mind was in everyone else's mind except for Abu Bakr, who was completely taken by surprise. The same thought that was in Omar's mind was in everyone else's mind that Abu Bakr should be the next leader. And Omar reached out and grabbed Abu Bakr's hand, which was the symbol back then of giving bayah, of pledging allegiance to someone. So Abu Bakr grabbed his hand and when he did that, that like broke the stalemate. That broke the silence and all the Ansars and Muhajirun who were gathered at this meeting rushed forward and also grabbed his hand, giving him the bayah. And just like that, Abu Bakr was chosen as the Khalifa Rasul or the successor, that's what Caliph really means, successor to the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There were one group of people, however, who hesitated from giving Abu Bakr the bayah, and that was Ali. As I mentioned, Ali was busy handling the arrangements for the Prophet's burial. So he was not present at that meeting and had no opportunity to give his opinion or give his input. And as the senior male member of the Prophet's family, he most certainly deserved that opportunity. He most certainly had the status and the honor to give his opinion and be present in that discussion. But things happened without him being there. And he did not immediately give Abu Bakr the bayah, though he would give him bayah several years later, several months later, really. He would give Abu Bakr the bayah. But for the first six months of Abu Bakr's rule or administration as a caliph, uh, Ali would not give him the bayah. And that's because Ali felt slighted at not being present or not having been consulted with Abu Bakr becoming leader. It's not that he disputed Abu Bakr's leadership. He disputed the fact that he was chosen without Ali being a part of it. And Abu Bakr, in his defense, he wasn't coming for that. He heard that people were about to choose a leader and he went over there to make sure things were done right. Things were happening very fast once again, and he didn't have a cell phone to text Ali. Say, Ali, you're about to choose. We're about to choose a leader. Come on over here quickly if you can. You know that couldn't be done. So 
Ali missed out on it, not because Abu Bakr and Omar were trying to deceive him or trying to trick him or anything like that, just the way things turned out. Sometimes we have to accept that people are human and humans make mistakes, or if not mistakes, sometimes things happen that are just outside of our control. This was something that happened really outside of Abu Bakr's control. He had started off trying to keep Medina from exploding in grief and sorrow and holding the Muslim community as, together as best as he can. Then he wanted to make sure that the community didn't separate under different leaderships and different factions and tribes. And next thing you know, he's he's chosen as the Khalifa of the Muslim Empire. And it's just amazing. He didn't really plan for any of this to happen. After the Prophet Sallallahu was buried and the word got out that he had died, most of these affiliated tribes who had joined the Muslim world, most of them quit. The vast majority of them left the leadership and rebelled against Abu Bakr's leadership. It should be understood, however, those who like to detract from Islam, they will say that these people, these tribes, immediately left Islam as soon as the Prophet died. That could not be further from the truth. That is absolutely false. As far as I know, I am not aware of any tribe that went back to idol worship after the Prophet died. None of them. You only had a few out of hundreds of tribes. Only three followed false prophets. And even among those false prophets, they still held to the basic tenets of Islam. They just declared that these other people were prophets after after Prophet Muhammad, which of course takes them out of Islam, but it's not like they went back to worshiping rocks and stones and stuff. And even that was only three tribes out of hundreds who had joined the Muslim community during the Prophet's life. The vast majority of them rebelled because A, the Arabs were not used to being under a central authority. They were not used to that at all. That had hardly ever been done. I can't think of any time in the history, going back to Ismail alayhi salam, Prophet Ismail it is, where all the Arab tribes were under one authority. I, I can't even think of that. You have some in the north who were under the authority of the Romans or the Persians. You have some in the south who were under the authority of the Abyssinians. But in the central portion, the real desert portion of Arabia, for the most part, they had never in their history been under one single authority. And this was new to them. They also didn't like the fact that they had to pay their zakat to Abu Bakr, to Medina. They were not against paying zakat in general, but they felt that they're going to give zakat, they're going to pay it on their own tribes and help their own people out and give it to their own leaders. They didn't like the idea of sending their zakat to Medina. To them, when they gave their zakat to, they sent their zakat to Medina during the Prophet's life, that was tribute. That was part of the deal of them being a conquered tribe. They had to pay tribute. That's how they thought it was. They didn't think of it as a religious duty that you send to the central authority and then they deal with it and, and spread it out among those Muslims who, who deserve it. They didn't think of it like that. They felt that we're not going to give up one of the primary symbols of our independence, our wealth, to some tribe hundreds, even thousands of miles away. So with that, many, many of them rebelled or simply left the allegiance of Islam. That's pretty much what they did. But for the most part, I, I'm pretty certain of this, none of the tribes went back to idol worship 
don't ever believe that. They just didn't want to pay Zakat. <laughs> they just wanted to be independent. But that's not what Abba Bakr had in mind. And then, of course, there were some tribes who actually saw Medina as a, a weak spot. They saw Medina as a prize that they could take. Now that the prophet was was dead and the Medina was pretty much by itself, it was just Medina, Mecca, and Taif that remained under the authority of Abu Bakr. They now saw that Medina could be taken. The army was gone. Osama's army had left. They weren't going to be back anytime soon. The uh, He couldn't call in troops from all around Arabia to come protect them. Medina was a fairly wealthy city by now. It was a center of the Muslim world. They said, shoot, let's go ahead and take Medina for ourselves. And so there were a few tribes, including one of these false prophets, Aswad al-Ansi, who thought, let's go ahead and raid, invade Medina and take it for ourselves. While they were preparing, however, Usama returned to Medina with his army. Remember, he had only left at the prophet's command, but he had not gone all the way to Syria where the Romans were. And he came back when he heard the prophet. He, re- he began his return back when he heard the prophet had died. But when he returned now, Abu Bakr, he basically said, you need to go ahead and back to Syria. The prophet gave you a command to go to Syria, and I'm not about to neglect and reject the prophet's command. Go on back to Syria and finish, complete the mission that Prophet Muhammad wasallam has sent you on. So several of the companions, including Omar ibn Khattab, really disagreed with this. They disagreed vehemently with Abu Bakr on this decision. They saw that the Muslim world had fractured. Most of the tribes had rebelled and turned against Islam, or turned against Abu Bakr, I should say. Some of them were now gathering forces to invade Medina and make themselves the center of the Muslim world. And so they didn't see the wisdom. They thought Abu Bakr was being foolish, really, or at least irresponsible for sending this army, this army of Osama, which was strong enough to fight the Romans. It could certainly be strong enough to handle these Arabian tribes. They thought it was crazy for him to send this army, Osama and his army, back to Syria when Medina was under threat. But from Abu Bakr's point of view, he was like the prophet gave an order. I am not about to go against that order. I will protect Medina by myself if I have to, but I'm not about to go and turn back an order that Prophet Muhammad gave this young man. And so Abu Bakr sent Osama ibn Zayd and the army back to Syria to handle the Romans. In the meantime, in the meantime, Abu Bakr gathered the few companions who were able to fight, who were still in Medina. He gathered them, armed them, and himself, he led them out of Medina to attack those tribes who were planning on invading Medina. He went out and attacked their forces. And this was a pretty amazing thing. Abu Bakr was not a young man at the time. He was in his 60s. This old man leading this force of mostly older Sahabas who were, they were battle-hardened now. They had fought before. They knew what they were doing. These were mostly older men. He led these these guys out, these brothers out, basically. They are brothers in Islam. He led these brothers out, go and take on these invading tribes. A bunch of old men, they're probably some young ones, but mostly old men with swords. They were not there to fight. And guess what? The old men kicked their butts. Abu Bakr and the companions, they rode out there and hit those tribes that were trying to invade Medina first. This was to, first of all, 
dissuade or convince people, no, you're not com- coming in Medina willy-nilly. You're going to come into Medina, we're going to fight you tooth and claw to our very last drop of blood. Secondly, he wanted to create a buffer zone because these tribes that were planning on invading Medina, they were the closest tribes to Medina. One of them was only 20 miles away. 20 miles is not that much, all right? 20 miles is, uh, you can cover 20 miles on a horse in, a, in less than a day. So when Abu Bakr attacked these tribes and pushed them back, that was the beginning of the reconquest of the Arabian Peninsula. That was the beginning of the wars of Riddah, the wars of apostasy. Now that Medina was safe from the immediate threat, Abu Bakr began to send out notices and emissaries to the different tribes who have rebelled against his leadership and tried to convince them to return back to the fold. And he wrote a letter to them, and we have a translation here. It goes as follows. From Abu Bakr, the Caliph of the Messenger of Allah, to each and every person, whether he has accepted Islam or not, let it be known to one and all that Allah the Almighty sent Muhammad as a true prophet who sought to give glad tidings and to warn and to call to Allah by his order. He is the illuminated lamp of guidance. Allah the Almighty guides one to the right path who accepts the invitation of Islam, but anyone who rejects it, it is made to show obedience through struggle and fighting. The Prophet of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, made his final departure after, after accomplishing his task of calling people towards Islam and the straight path of Allah. And Allah the Almighty has already acquainted all with this in the Quran. Verily, you will die and they will also die. Chapter 39, verse 30. Thus, one who worshipped Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Muhammad is now dead and gone. But one who worshipped Allah alone, then Allah is living, and he has not died. He is neither overpowered by sleep, nor touched by drowsiness. He looks after his own orders, and will at any time take revenge on his enemies. I exhort you all to fear Allah, to share what the Prophet ﷺ brought in the form of light and guidance from Allah, to follow the guidance of Allah, and to hold firmly to the rope of the religion of Allah. Anyone who is not guided by Allah the Almighty goes astray. He is helpless and alone who is deprived of the support of Allah. No deed of a man is acceptable in this world and the hereafter while he rejects Islam. I have come to know that some of you have turned to follow Satan in acts of ignorance forsaking Allah the Almighty. Allah the Almighty says that Satan is your sworn enemy, so be hostile to Satan, for he seeks to make his followers dwellers of hellfire. I have decided to send the detachment made up of the Muhajirun and the Ansar to you. They follow virtue. I have instructed them not to fight anybody without calling them to Islam and to lend support to those who accept Islam, to keep from evil and reject not the good, and to fight those who reject Islam. It is good for the one who accepts Islam. I have ordered my emissary to read out this message at a large gathering. When a Muslim detachment draws near and its caller calls the Adhan, you too respond to it by calling the Adhan. This symbolizes your acceptance of Islam and thus spares your life. If you fail to call the Adhan, you will invite the Muslims to attack. Now, Abu Bakr has sent these out a little bit before he went out to deal with those tribes who were about to invade Medina. He sent these notices out, basically telling people to hold 
tightly to the rope of Allah, understand that we are one Muslim community, and he is sending these small troops and detachments to you as a warning. There will be more to follow if you are still under the umbrella of Islam. If you are still part of the Muslim community, when they come to you, they will make the adhan. When they make the adhan, respond to them with an adhan of your own, and that will give them the message that you are still under the community of Islam. If you do not, then that is an indication of your rebellion and expect them to attack you soon. Now keep in mind there were some companions who disagreed with Abu Bakr on this note also, one of them once again being Omar ibn al-Khattab. He understood, just like I mentioned also uh, earlier, that most of these tribes who had rebelled against Abu Bakr had not rebelled against Islam. They had just decided that they did not want to pay tribute to Abu Bakr. They did not want to send their zakat to him. But they continued to pray, many of them actually. They sent delegations to Medina asking Abu Bakr, saying that we don't want to leave the prayer. We just want an acceptance from paying. We just want an exception from paying zakat. And Omar understood what they were talking about. And Omar was also concerned about the threats to Medina as well. And he was perhaps also concerned about fighting Muslims and spilling Muslim blood. Allah knows best. I'm sure that was weighing on his mind. And so he tried to convince Abu Bakr to let them go. I mean, they just don't want to pay zakat. They're still Muslim. We're going to fight fellow Muslims, especially in our current situation. And Abu Bakr was like, if they hold back one single hobbling cord that they gave to Prophet Muhammad, then I will fight them. Abu Bakr's mindset was holding the Muslim ummah together. And I find that in direct opposition to our feelings these days, where we are quick to separate and start our own massages at the, at the slightest grievance, where we are quick to pick and choose between our different leaders and speakers whom we think are better than others and degrade and denounce others. We are quick to make division where Abu Bakr was fighting with all of his might to hold the Muslim Ummah together in one nation. And as we shall see, he also had chosen the right course of action. Even Omar ibn Khattab later on would admit that Abu Bakr was right and he was wrong. So now Abu Bakr had a five-step plan, which we will outline now. Now, I'm not going to say Abu Bakr really sat down and wrote these five steps out, but in reading the history, you can kind of get an idea of what he hoped to occur, how he hoped to handle the situation. First and foremost, he had to protect Medina. He had to protect Medina, Mecca, and Taif, which is, they're all, all three of these cities are in a close region together on the, on the eastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula, not too far from the Red Sea. <clears throat> so Abu Bakr's first and foremost concern was to protect Medina and then hold out until Osama returned from uh, Syria with the army. Because he knew he really couldn't do but so much until Osama returned. Once Osama returned, things would be different. But he had to hold out in Medina until Osama returned with that army. Once Osama returned, his plan was to divide the army into several different battalions and then send them out to bring these different tribes back into the fold of his leadership and some of them back into the fold of Islam. 
But the, the main portion that he was really concerned about was the center part of Arabia, the Najd, the area in the Najd. And the reason why was that there, these tribes were, first of all, closest to Medina. Also, some of them were extremely large and very dangerous. So his plan was to first take back the western part of Arabia, which he did when he defended Medina with those few companions and then strike out into the center of Arabia and take care of those big tribes there, particularly Muslim al-Kadhab, take back that part of Arabia. So that's the first three steps. Number one, protect Medina. Number two, divide the army of Osama when they return from uh, Syria to into several different battalions to begin to bring the the wayward Arabian Arab tribes back into the fold. And number three, protect the western and central part of Arabia. And this would mostly be done under Khalid ibn Walid. Fourth step was to focus on the big players. That was these three false prophets. They were the big players. Focus on them and bring them back under control. And finally, when the center of Arabia was pacified, go ahead and strike out on the northern and southern parts of Arabia, those tribes who had left Islam in the northern and southern parts. So that was his plan. Ultimately, however, most of that did work out. I don't know if he actually planned for it to work out that way, but most of that did work out. We will go into the details, inshallah, in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. But as it turns out, Usama did return not too long after Abu Bakr and those companions protecting Medina, Usama and his army did return and they returned victorious. They returned with several slaves, lots of wealth and a fresh army, which had recently been victorious against one of the strongest armies in the world. And now Abu Bakr had, for lack of a better phrase, he had his guns now. The army of Usama was back in Medina and now Abu Bakr could get to work and start teaching these rebellious tribes just what kind of person he was. When Abu Bakr became the Khalifa, people began to call him the father of the sickly camel. Bakr, Abu Bakr's name, Abu Bakr is not his real name, that's a nickname. It means the father of the lively camel. The rebels, when they turned against Abu Bakr, they began to call him the father of the sickly camel. Well, these people were about to learn just what kind of man Abu Bakr was. And now that the the army of Osama was back in Medina, it was time to go into action. We will see how Abu Bakr and his general, Khalid ibn Walid, brings the rebels, the apostates, the Murtadin, back into the fold of Islam. And they would come kicking and screaming and dragging, but... There are, they are going to come back. All that will be the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast, inshallah, coming out next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah, I pray that you enjoyed that episode and that you learned something new. Inshallah, we will continue and actually complete the story of the Riddha Wars or the Wars of Apostasy in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm going to use this time to try to give you an overview of what we're going to cover over the next several months. For now, these first two episodes are going to cover Abu Bakr's Caliphate, which will primarily be taken up by 
the wars of apostasy, also known as the Ridda Wars. And then we will also discuss the Muslims' first incursions into Persian and Byzantine territory. Overall, we will cover roughly three periods during these first 100 years. Much of our time will be covered talking about the four righteous caliphs of Islam. That will be Abu Bakr, uh, Omar, Uthman, and then finally Ali. We will also get into the beginnings of the Sunni-Shia split, and we have spoken about that before, but we will get into a little bit more detail as we see what happens after the wars between Ali and Aisha, radiallahu anhum. After that, we're going to discuss more about the Umayyad dynasty, which was the first true dynasty to really have control in the Muslim world, and we will not be able to complete the entire history of the Umayyad dynasty, but we are going to cover quite a bit of it. We will discuss how Islam spread from the Arabian Peninsula, then out into Northern Africa, and also into Asia, and then all the way up into Spain, and we will end the story with the year 720 CE, which is when the Muslims were defeated in France, and that marked the limit of Muslim expansion, uh, territorial expansion through military conquest. From that point on, Islam still continued to spread, but it wasn't through military means. It was through generally peaceful means, as well as trading, merchant merchandising, um, travel, Stuff like that. So we're going to discuss that, inshallah, over the next several weeks. And inshallah, you will hopefully have a much better understanding of Islam, better understand why we are in the situation we are right now, because a lot of it relates to the current situation, the current times. But for the most part, I hope you appreciate the great blessings that Allah has given us as Muslims and how much responsibility we have to be grateful for those blessings. Now, just one more personal note is I am now working a full-time job, basically 40 hours a week or more. So I have very little time to work on this podcast. So please be patient with me if the episodes are kind of late. I'm going to try to put a new one out every week. If I can't, I may have to run reruns of old old episodes or we'll see. It's, it's very rough uh, trying to fit this hobby basically that's what it is trying to fit this hobby in between providing for a family of like seven of us is ridiculous and a household of eight because really eight people live in this household but anyway that's neither here nor there the point is i do have people who depend on me for their for their livelihood and their responsibility is the primary thing on my mind after my responsibility to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I will try to fit this podcast in on the peripherals of my time. So please bear with me and understand I'm just one person. I have 24 hours in a day just like everybody else. But inshallah, I will try to keep these pod- this podcast going along smoothly and I hope most importantly that you enjoy it and benefit from it. And if you are any sort of historian, if you are concerned about this sort of thing, do know that we will be following the great man theory of history. Without going into too much detail, this is a, a history philosophy that believes or puts forward the idea that historical events usually center around 
great people or people who have done amazing things. And there are people who criticize and dispute that philosophy. But for the most part, that makes it very easy to tell a story from my perspective. So being able to tell the story or build a story around individuals makes it much easier for me. And so that's a philosophy we will try to use in delivering the story about the 100 years of Islam, first 100 years of Islam. So inshallah, I hope you enjoy it. Once again, inshallah, any good you get from this is from Allah and any mistakes are from me and I ask Allah for his forgiveness. Next week, inshallah, we will be discussing and concluding the story of the wars of apostasy and we will conclude the caliphate of Abu Bakr and then head on into the caliphate of Omar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhum. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I look, I look, I look, I see. I see a world of beauty. I touch, I touch, I touch, I feel. I feel the world around so real. And everything I do, I dedicate to you. Cause you made me, I am for you. I listen, 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 I hear. I, listen, listen, hear. I hear the words of God so clear. I read, I read, I read, I know. It helps my knowledge grow. And everything we do, we dedicate to you. Cause you made us. We are for you. I listen, 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 I hear. He sent the prophet to show us the way. He made religion perfect that day. Peace be upon him, upon him we pray. Salatullah wa salamu alay. I sleep, I sleep, I sleep, I dream. I dream I'm in the garden green I wish, I wish, I wish, I pray I pray to be here every day And everything I do I dedicate to you Cause you made me, I am for you I work, I work, I work, I strive to make something of my life I seek, I seek, I seek, I find I find another hill to climb And everything we do We dedicate to you Cause you made us We are for you I look, I look, I look, I see he sent the prophet to show us the way. He made religion perfect that day. Peace be upon him, upon him we pray. Salatullah wa salamu alayhi. He sent the prophet to show us the way. He made religion perfect that day. Peace be upon him, upon him we pray. Salatullah wa salamu alayhi Peace be upon him, upon him we pray Salatullah wa salamu alayhi